Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official Tennis Canada podcast. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. You can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can follow me at Ben Lewis SN590, and you can follow Mike at McIntyre Tennis. Well, Mike, uh, the fourth and final Grand Slam of the tennis season is upon us from Flushing Meadows as we get set for the 139th edition of the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic defending the men's title, Naomi Osaka defending the women's crown and interestingly enough both players holding the number one seed it's amazing how quickly the last slam of the year kind of comes upon us like it seems like it wasn't that long ago we were getting excited for our aussie open preview and here we are now the last slam of the year sort of a last chance for people to salvage a season that hasn't gone according to plan or to sort of uh, confirm that earlier success maybe was no fluke so uh, excited to have this happen because I know in two weeks time, I'm going to be a little bit sad that no more major tennis action for 2019. Yeah, it really changes once you get into the fall season, though there will be tennis post US Open, but uh, we're just wrapping up the qualifying now as we get set for the main draw Monday and joining us to preview the event on this week's episode, tennis writer and tennis now contributor Eric Goodris joins us on the line. Eric, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. We appreciate it, and uh, we wanted to start on the men's side of things. Uh, of course, the story being the big three, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, 54 Grand Slams total between these three players, 11 in a row, and it's really jo- Djokovic who's kind of had the dominant stranglehold, uh, as it were, on the men's tour, winning four of the last five, and particularly we've seen his dominance on hard court. He's holding the number one seed. He looks like he's in a tough bracket for the draw, but uh, we'll start with the question Despite that Cincinnati result losing to Daniel Medvedev, is he still the overwhelming favorite in your eyes? Uh, Definitely. I think Djokovic comes into the U.S. Open, the overwhelming favorite. Um, As you said, he's pretty much dominated the majors the last few years. And the U.S. Open, hard court, um, definitely one of his best surfaces and it's atmosphere that he likes and it's really just about him managing the first week uh trying to avoid getting involved in any kind of complicated early round matches so he can kind of save himself physically for the the second week um and you know his draw is pretty manageable that first week although there are a few big names that pop out um that he's going to have to pay attention to should he face them Yeah, Djokovic definitely, to me, has come back with such a resurgence since that nearly sort of two-year lull where he was having those elbow issues, and he's just so dialed in winning so many of the last few slams. I'm not particularly concerned uh, with the fact that he didn't win in Cincinnati. I mean, when you come back after not playing since Wimbledon, transitioning surfaces, uh, that to me is is not something to be concerned about at all when it comes to to Novak. Uh, That being said, when I start looking into the later rounds for him, round four, and beyond certainly doesn't uh, doesn't look like smooth sailing with a potential round four with Stan Vavrinka and beyond that, perhaps in the quarters, a Cincinnati rematch with Medvedev. Correct. I mean, with Vavrinka, you never know what you're going to get. If you're going to get uh, the great Stan or the sort of middle of the road Stan. So that's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens there with Medvedev. He, obviously he's had the summer, of his career um, and it seems to be ready to perhaps maybe make that breakthrough at a major. If they certainly do meet uh, in the later round, that could certainly be an incredible match. Um, of course, I'll have to med- to see how he kind of handles the situation 
um, having gotten that win against Djokovic in Cincinnati. Um, but again, I still think that it's it's really Djokovic here. Um, it's his draw to it's his draw to uh, to do the best with, and um, I certainly could see him just you know easing his way into the semifinals. And it's funny with Medvedev, as you mentioned, he's been really on fire this summer by making finals in D.C., finals in Montreal, and then winning in uh, in Cincinnati. But all that being said, hasn't had that breakthrough at a slam, hasn't made it past the fourth round of a slam, which I believe he's only done once in 11 tries. Uh, until I see him, you know, go deep at a slam, I- I'm not feeling that that he's going to trouble Novak in, in a best-of-five set match yet, guys. I, I agree. I mean, I, that's certainly true. A best-of-five is a totally different, uh, totally different match. And... Um, Again, we're just going to have to see how he kind of handles, not only handles best of five, but handles the additional tension that he's getting just because of the great summer he had. Roger Federer also on that top half of the draw and looks to have, uh, I would say, a pretty comfortable draw until maybe he gets uh, into the quarterfinal side. I- I'm not sure about the health of Kane Ishikori. Then you're trying to find other potential landmines who could give him difficulty. David Goffin, uh reaching the finals recently in Cincinnati. He's been playing some good tennis. And then Nadal on the bottom half of the draw, to me, has a very, very cushy path uh, t- to reach the final. Uh, obviously, Nadal is, you know, completely dominant, unstoppable on the clay, but he just recently won Montreal. He has three U.S. Opens. Is this a spot? Is this sort of a draw where Nadal's eyes should maybe be lighting up because this is a definite opportunity to reach another Grand Slam final here? I think so, just because, A, he doesn't have to face Djokovic or Federer until the final. Uh, And again, he won Montreal, and he's been playing very well, and I think this is the kind of opportunity for him to just, as long as he can, you know, get through that first week, not have any kind of complicated early round matches, um, really save himself for that for the final couple, you know, days in the second week. And this draw is, you know, it's it's a great draw for him. Um, I'm just kind of looking through it right now just to see. I mean, uh, you know, Hachinov is kind of lurking there, depending. He, depending on how he plays. But really, this is a great opportunity for Nadal to uh, to kind of get yeah, in there and win another U.S. Open. Before a, a potential quarterfinal with Hatchinov, uh, I mean, Isner and Chilich, neither one has been playing particularly well of late. Uh, Hatchinov would be interesting, though, to me, because he did play Nadal pretty tough last summer, both when they met in Canada at the Rogers Cup and then also their U.S. Open match. Uh, I don't believe it went five sets, but it felt like it went five sets because it, was, mm-hmm. it yeah. was a lengthy one. So to me... Of all the sort of outside of big three names uh, for Nadal to face in the quarters, he might prove to be the the toughest one, in my opinion. I agree. I'm looking at uh, just other names and finding other spots where we can, you know, see a potential upset. And it's been an unusual summer because we're looking for players like Stefano Tsitsipas, Alexander Zverev to make uh, the next step. And Tsitsipas, of course, he was fantastic in Australia. He did well on the clay court season, but uh, the summer has been a rough stretch for him. Zverev has had a bad 2019. Uh, Other than Daniel Medvedev, who we've obviously seen a fantastic summer from, are there any other dark horses that are maybe standing out to you in the draw who could be dangerous uh, and have the potential to maybe upset one of these big three before we kind of dig into those quarterfinals, semifinals. I mean, I have to say not, not, not jumping off the, no, no names jumping off the draw for me to do that. I mean, certainly 
somebody could if they kind of put together a great two weeks. But again, all these players that you've mentioned, Tsitsipas and Zarev, and even Dominic Team, uh, I mean, they they've certainly had their moments, but it, they've yet to kind of, except for Team at the French Open, obviously, but they've all yet to prove themselves at the majors. And I'm not seeing anyone here except for maybe Nick Kyrgios, but of course that all depends on Nick Kyrgios's temperament and how he's feeling day to day with life generally. Um, but um, I just I'm not seeing any any name on this in this draw that I think is going to disrupt the the top three from getting to the semifinals. Yeah, it's funny on the men's side when we talk about dark horses. I mean, anybody outside of the top three in men's tennis is kind of considered a dark horse, even if you're the fourth, fifth, or sixth ranked player in the world. That's just because of their incredible domination at the slams. Uh, but when I look in that uh, third quarter, uh, I do see some names that don't have to face anyone of the big three until potentially a semifinal against Nadal. And those are the guys that I would lean to who could start picking up some speed as the second week uh, gets going, knowing they're going to be there uh, into that part of the draw, that when they do finally face Nadal, if they're hitting their stride, that could be be really problematic for for Rafa, depending on if they can carry that forward. And those names are Kyrgios, as you mentioned, uh, depending on which Nick Kyrgios is going to show up. Uh, Dominic Team, obviously, who outside the big three has shown uh, sort of, to me, the most consistency in the slams and played great on hardcourt earlier this year. And then one name I'll throw out there is Roberto Bautista Agu, who Ben always likes to mention, and he has played really well at moments this year on different surfaces, great run at Wimbledon as well. So I think in terms of confidence, he's going to be coming in feeling pretty good about himself too. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Uh, RBA is, uh, you know, 10th seed at this draw. We, we're looking at Canadians as well. Obviously, uh, we're a Canadian podcast and uh, kind of unfortunate for a second consecutive year, Eric, that uh, Felix Ojealiasim is going to be facing Denis Shapovalov in the very first round of this draw. Mm-hmm. But uh, Felix has become one of the most electric players on the ATP Tour. He's not just being noticed here in Canada, but kind of noticed uh, internationally in the tennis sphere. Uh, his summer has been, you know, a little bit up and down, but uh, in terms of his potential and his ceiling, he looks like one of the best young players in the world. What do you make of his draw? Obviously facing the fellow compatriot in Dennis early on and maybe his opportunity to finally prove himself at a grand slam stage, as opposed to, you know, doing well at the lower level ATP events. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly think Felix has a great opportunity here just because like you said, of his results this year and where he's landed in the draw, he's landed in, in, in the section that I think has the most opportunity for a lot of players there. Um, certainly the Shapovala rematch is going to be interesting, and it's something he, if he can kind of get through that, then I think he certainly has the potential here to, you know, to, to win a couple of rounds and, and, and see if he can uh, uh, perhaps have that breakthrough uh, win to you know, reach the second week or deeper. So I think he's definitely got the opportunity it's just how he's going to manage kind of the expectations, like you said, that he's become a, a much more a much more known quantity outside of Canada, and um, just taking advantage, uh, mainly just taking advantage of the draw that he's got handed to him. Eric, you're not Canadian, but I'll ask you, Ben, what was your reaction when you saw Dennis and Felix's names uh, side by side again at the draw ceremony? Uh, it was, you know, a kind of a bummer, to be honest. Uh, I, I heard that I think we would have four or five names in, in one quarter uh, was kind of the uh, 
feeling I heard through the grapevine uh, as they were releasing the draw, and, and I was sensing we were going to run into trouble uh, and see two Canadians pair off, and, and that's been kind of the case the past couple weeks uh, through the summer, and now we see it at the U.S. Open again. A- another Canadian who is used to being the top-ranked Canadian in this field, but he's not Eric. Uh, this time is Milos Raonic, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's been constant health questions for him, but I, I can't, mm-hmm. can't help but think that when he is healthy, he's one of the most dangerous players on, on the men's side. Uh, I, I'm wondering if you think his body could possibly hold up for, for you know, a week-plus here and uh, get himself deep into a Flushing Meadows draw. Uh, again, that is the big question, and if the body does hold up for Milos, then yes, he definitely is one of the more dangerous players to face. I mean, I think he probably should have gone deeper at Wimbledon, um, but he um, he's got you know he's got the serve, and um, if the body holds up, he's got the experience as well at the majors. So maybe this is a good opportunity for him because. Some of these younger Canadians are getting more of the attention right now, and he can kind of just work his way through the the early rounds of the draw, and and maybe something will break open for him. So as long as he stays healthy, he's definitely definitely one of those um, dark horses, not necessarily to win the title, but a dark horse maybe to break through and reach the semis. I'd love to see Milos have a, a positive sort of end to the slam season in 2019, but I just don't have the confidence in his body, given the fact that he's been struggling lately, even in best of three matches to get through him. As we saw, you know, he won that second set against Felix in Montreal, and he couldn't even continue to try in the third because of his back. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, when he's talking about how he hasn't felt healthy, really 100% healthy at any point yet in 2019, mm-hmm. I don't think a grueling best of five on the hard courts in New York is what's going to turn things around for him, which is upsetting because he's got a pretty good draw there. If you pencil him in round four against Nishikori, who he himself admits that his elbow is not completely healed, could have been a nice opportunity. But I think 2019 is just looking like not the season for Milos, uh, Milos Raonic. Yeah, we will uh, see. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us at Matchpoint Can. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. And our guest this week for our U.S. Open preview episode is Eric Goodris. You can find him on Twitter at ATN Tennis. Uh, we will shift over to the women's side. And Eric, I guess before we delve right into the draw, we, we have to talk about this big first round match because mm-hmm. we're getting Serena Williams, Maria Sharapova under mm-hmm. the lights in New York. Uh, how fantastic is this as a matchup, given the fact that the head-to-head is actually so unbelievably one-sided? I think it's it's an incredible first round, obviously, and I mean it could potentially be a final. I think it's what's intriguing to me is both how both players are coming into this match. Serena, we know, um, had to uh, retire at the in the final in Toronto, but it looks like she's healthy. So certainly, if Serena is 100, um, percent she's definitely in there to win yet another U.S. Open. I think Maria comes into this match probably with a lot of motivation because Maria has not had a great year. She's been dealing with lots of various injuries and whatnot, and she just hasn't played a lot of matches. And she just has not been a factor in the last couple of years at any of the majors. So, and I think that's in some of her press conferences, she talks about how she feels like she's starting her career over and over again with this sort of start and stop of the season she's had. So to come into this match against Serena she knows she has the losing record against her, but if for, if somehow she were able to defeat Serena in the first round, that would be a huge statement win for Maria to say, I'm not saying she's all the way back, 
but that she that she can still make make big noise at the majors and that possibly she can work her way back to getting there to the, to the top level again. So I think Maria is probably going to come into this match with more more motivation. I don't know if that's going to help her at all against Serena, but I think it's I think that's kind of the, the, the dynamic to look for in this one. I thought the Sharapova Halep match from a couple of years ago in the first round at the U.S. Open was going to be one for the ages, and it turned out to be a pretty good one. Uh, Sharapova didn't go that much further after that, un- unfortunately. But this one, to me, when I saw it at the draw ceremony, again, your heart just kind of leaps. You're like, oh my God, unbelievable. But it's funny, all this hype, and there's a 19-2 and head-to-head record, and Maria hasn't beaten Serena since 2004, which is a heck of a long time ago. Uh, Maria hasn't won the U.S. Open for 13 years now either. That being said, I think, yeah, with Serena's health, if there's anything that could open up a window, um, and then this is kind of like the match we wanted to see at the French Open a year ago that didn't happen because uh, Serena withdrew right before they were to play in the fourth round, I want to say. So... To me, guys, do you think that Maria has a, a valid chance here to potentially get career win number three against Serena? I, I guess I can and go ahead and say I do think the chance exists only for the fact that Maria, maybe for the first time in this matchup in a while, I think is the healthier player than Serena Williams. If she's been dealing with those back issues and, uh, you know, was unable to play in Cincinnati and obviously wanted more match play after that Rogers cup, if she has questions about her health and Serena uh, and Maria has been getting a bit more match play in some of those tough competitive matches. Uh, we were on hand at, at Aviva center, Erica, uh, when she played a great three set match with Annette Contevite, uh, she was on the losing end of that. But I, I think, as you said, this could be a, a big opportunity for Maria Sharapova to, to kind of open up the floodgates if, if she could earn herself a victory or if she's even just competitive. I agree, but I, I still think Maria will have to play very well. I don't think Maria can come in there and play kind of a, a patchy match that she has played in some of the matches she's had this season. So I think she's going to have to come in and play one of her best matches, and even then it may not be enough. Yeah, that is uh, that is true. Serena Williams, the eighth seed. We've talked about parity so often on the WTA, Eric, and uh, actually uh, to start this season, we had 18 separate winners at 18 separate tournaments, uh, which just shows you how many players can win on the women's side. Are there any you know particular names, if you were to kind of break it down to a short list of four or five names on the women's side that maybe you were favoring uh, at the U.S. Open, at least for 2019? Um, I, I mean, I'll still go with Osaka. I, I know there's some questions about uh, this injury or whatnot, but I still feel like when, when she is dialed into her game, she is very tough to beat, obviously, and I think hard courts suit her game so well. So I'm not going to – I think she's definitely in that short list. Obviously, uh, Simona Halep just coming off uh, Wimbledon, winning that. Uh, she's got to be coming in with a lot of confidence. Um, hasn't – you know, she's lost in the first round of the U.S. Open last two years, so she's probably looking to do a whole lot better there. Um, you know, Karolina Pliskova, you can't count her out either because she's gotten to the finals there, and she's kind of one of those players that when she gets into the groove, especially with her serve, she's really tough to beat. Um, and... I, I don't know. You know, Ash Barty is kind of interesting for me because she hasn't... She's played good throughout the summer but not great and that might be just enough to get her through some of the early rounds but I, I don't know if I see her kind of winning the, the whole thing so 
Um, I know those are, the, those are some of the top-seeded players. There's certainly a lot of other players there that could potentially make some noise, like um, Kuznetsova, obviously, she had that great run in Cincinnati. She she may not probably won't win the whole thing, but if she kind of gets stays in that groove, she could certainly bust open that part of the draw she's in. And, of course, have to segue into Andrescu because um, she's certainly uh, been talked about, and if she can um, – find that great game that she's had this year, then she certainly is on that short list as well. When I'm looking at my, uh, you know, four or five names to watch on the women's side, it's first of all, totally different from before I see the draw. And then after I see the draw, just because it's so deep. But uh, if Belinda Bencic is uh, healthy, I know she had a bit of a foot injury uh, in Cincinnati, but if she's healthy and ready to go, then she's one that I would watch on the women's side and potentially playing Osaka in the fourth round. Uh, She's beaten Osaka twice this year, uh, once on clay, once on hard court. And Osaka really doesn't have a big, like, top 20. In fact, she doesn't have a top 20 win yet this year since the Australian Open, which was back in January. So I give Bencic potentially the edge there just mentally in the fact that uh, that she's had some strong moments this season. Uh, Andreescu, as you mentioned, and I think we'll probably touch on her a little bit later as well, would be pretty cool to see her play Simona Halep for the first time in the fourth round if they both make it through, which I would expect that they do. Uh, Andreescu having her Romanian roots and, and looking up to Halep as a kid, that'd be kind of a, a nice story, and I'd like to see how their games uh, sort of compare. And then one other name I'll throw out there, just sort of outside of the box, but Sophia Kennan also has had a really good summer, and uh, we saw her play pretty well in Toronto not too long ago. She spoke with us on the podcast, and uh, I wouldn't count her out uh, either. Uh, she lines up against potentially Svitolina in the fourth round, who hasn't really been known to have a ton of slam success despite her semifinal appearance at uh, Wimbledon earlier this summer. That's, uh, that's true. Uh, one name that... Uh, was on my short list, but uh, not mentioned by either of you. I'll bring her up, and she just won Cincinnati, of course, is is Madison Keys. Uh, Keys, to me, is possibly the most talented player on this women's side uh, that hasn't won a Grand Slam yet, and, uh, you know, she's been to a U.S. Open final. Uh, is, is this maybe an opportunity for everything to come together for her? You, you think the lead-in winning Cincinnati, her, her talent and her ball striking, uh, is she a candidate as well? I think so, but I think with Madison, it's still all, it all kind of depends on how she's feeling the ball and how she's playing for those two weeks. And so definitely winning Cincinnati is going to give her so much confidence going into the open. And she's obviously going to get all the crowd support. She got to the finals there a couple of years ago. Um, I, I, I don't know if I would, I'm still not convinced though that she's going to put it all together and win it unless she's just playing kind of lights out tennis. If she's playing that kind of tennis that we know she's capable of, then, then I definitely could see her as, as a contender for the title, but she's going to have to play that kind of level throughout the entire tournament to, to get there. not sort of the up and down tennis that she can get involved in when she's not playing her best. And Mike, you just mentioned Sophia Cannon, and that looks to be a potential great, third round match if those two Americans can run into one another I think that would be a very very close encounter I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Bianca Andreescu and what you've seen from her game because uh, just the other day Brad Gilbert was on ESPN and says and said Bianca has the best forehand in the women's game which is pretty pretty high praise for a player who's only 19 years of age Uh, but when we've seen her play I I mean you know this isn't smoke and mirrors and Canadian bias Bianca has been that exceptional this season winning Indian Wells and winning Rogers Cup coming back from injury Uh, what do you make of Bianca as as a rising superstar and, and a 
what do you make of her chances to kind of stay atop the women's game for years to come? Um, I think she certainly has that potential. Again, the concern is with all the injuries and trying that she has got to stay healthier just so that she can kind of avoid what happened to her this season when she went in in Wells and then she, she had the injuries and then she really couldn't compete at the French Open and Wimbledon. So just being able to be healthy so she can play a full season uh, I think will help her uh, in the long run, obviously. Um, certainly has so much upside potential with the power loves the hard courts, and um, I think she can go into this, this U.S. Open, um, even though there's, she's being talked about so much, uh, but hopefully she'll go in and just sort of enjoy the moment and just sort of swing freely, and if she can do that, then who knows? She could certainly, um, she could potentially win the whole thing if, she's, if she uh, plays like she, like she played up in uh, Toronto. I mean, considering what she did after pretty much four months off, only playing that one match at the French Open, to, for her to come back in Toronto play at the level that she did, beat players like Kiki Burdens, Karolina Pliskova. Uh, I, I mean, why couldn't she continue that momentum moving forward, especially given that the slams, she's going to have that day off in between. So I like uh, I like the draw for the most part, although I think a Halep matchup would be, uh, would be particularly tricky. It's too bad it would have to come so early. But uh, otherwise, there aren't that many players that I would uh, have concerns about her facing right now. And, and I don't think she would either with the way that her uh, confidence has been going. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly true, and uh, I know she's been dreaming of facing Simona Halep, uh, as Bianca also has that Romanian blood. So we'll uh, keep our fingers crossed for that round of 16. Certainly hard to project the women's side, but uh, as it unfolds, we'll have another podcast next week. Eric, I want to thank you so much for joining us for our preview episode this week, and uh, we really appreciate having you on. Thank you for having me. It was great. Perfect. That was Eric Goodras, tennis writer and contributor for Tennis Now. You can find him on Twitter at ATN Tennis. Uh, we'll just run down all the Canadian matchups in the first round so everybody knows, obviously. Just starting on the med side, I think everybody's aware that Felix Oja Aliasim and Denis Shapovalov are playing. Milos Raonic gets uh, Nicholas Jari, who is a tricky player. That's actually not. Certainly not a given to, to win a match like that when you're facing a, a pretty hard-hitting Chilean who has a good serve. So that'll be a nice early test for Milos Raonic. Uh, Brayden Schnur will be facing Benoit Pair, who is seated at this event 29th. And then uh, Vashik Pospisil, very, very difficult draw. We, we, we've been speaking about hoping that Vashik would get some winnable matches. It's not and happening. Then, so. then he draws uh, number nine, Karen Hachinov. So I... I believe he'll compete his absolute hardest, but he's going to be a significant underdog. I, I was expecting Vashik to line up against Felix in the draw. That was the <laughs> yeah. all-Canadian matchup <laughs> that right. I thought we'd see because we saw it at Wimbledon and we saw it in mm. uh, Montreal, of course. I mean, Felix just keeps drawing these Canadians, which is kind of unfortunate. It must make him feel kind of awkward. Um, but uh, at any rate, poor Vashik gets uh, not just a seeded player, but a seeded player that uh, is really, to me, a contender outside of the big three to, uh, to potentially challenge to play in the semis, maybe in the finals here, depending on how things go. So that's going to be a tough one for him. But Vashik showed tremendous fight against Felix in that three-set match that ended in a tiebreak in Montreal. Yeah. I, I Again, best of five is going to be pretty tough on him. And uh, it's funny to say that Vashik is getting older because he still looks kind of like much younger with that baby face. But the fact of the matter is he isn't as young as he used to be and he is coming back off that back injury. So that, to me, would be a little bit concerning. Uh, as for Braden Schnur, before we move along, uh, this is pretty cool for him. The first time that he's qualified right off the bat, uh, just by virtue of ranking alone on the main mm -hmm. draw of a slam, and only the second time he's playing in a main draw, the first being just uh, a month or so ago, 
at Wimbledon where he lost to uh, Marcos Bagdadis in the first round. So uh, I think that it's a great experience for him. The payday obviously is enormous. I forget how much their losers in the first round would make, but whether he wins or loses that match, that'll be a nice uh, financial um, sort of uh, reward for him. Uh, not to mention the experience of it and up to 92 in the rankings right now. It's really nice to see Braden in the top 100 after all his hard work this past uh, couple of years. Yeah, and he's absolutely earned his place and earned his right to, to play in this draw and uh, nice that you don't have to qualify. Uh, tough for Toronto's Steven Diaz. He was very close to qualifying for his first ever Grand Slam at the age of 28. He lost in the final round of qualifying. Maybe there's a chance he sneaks in as a lucky loser. I'll mention the women's matchups. Uh, Bianca Andreescu, pretty nice draw to begin. She's getting an American wildcard, Katie Volanets. And Jeannie Bouchard, we've talked about the tough losing skid she is on. Uh, I believe it's 11 in a row, and she's in very, very tough against the 12th seat Anastasia uh, Sevastova. So tough spot for Jeannie here, but uh, she is getting into the main draw, and it's another opportunity, and she's been working hard with coach Jorge Tadero. So we'll see if the tide turns at all. Uh, some other news to get to. We recently saw that uh, Sloan Stevens is getting a new coach. Yeah, this one was a total shock to me because just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Kamau Murray on the practice courts uh, in Toronto with Monica Pui, uh, Olympic gold medalist Monica Pui. And uh, I mean, they've been together for uh, a few months by now, but I didn't think that that partnership had really seen the uh, entire potential of its uh, of its joining. And so all of a sudden, Kamau Murray, you know, just before a major decides he's going to jump ship and reunite with Sloan Stevens. And yeah, they had lots of success in the past and it was surprising that they parted ways. Uh, I, I just feel bad for, for Monica Pui really to have something like this happen to her. Mm-hmm. I, I gather unexpectedly right before a major tournament starts, it just kind of rubs me the, the wrong way. And, and she's such a wonderful person and does so much for her native uh, Puerto Rico and, uh, and just seems like one of the, the nice players on the tour that, you know, your heart kind of goes out to her and you think, well, couldn't the timing on this have potentially waited or couldn't this have been communicated a little bit uh, sooner because there was Kamau Murray not more than two and a half weeks ago courtside watching Pui in Toronto. It just seems a little bit odd to me. Yeah, not uh, not ideal optics, uh, but obviously Sloan Stevens, uh, one of these top-ranked players who is looking to, you know, kind of jolt her game and get things together because she has had a tough 2019. And if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm not really listing her as a contender to win this title right now. No, and she could come out of nowhere. I mean, that's the thing is it's you just you never you never know, right? Anything can yeah. happen. But uh, she has not been playing her best tennis lately. And uh, when I saw her on the practice courts in Toronto, she was kind of, you know, half joking with another player. Like, I just can't get motivated to practice the same way that I do when I go out for a match. But you've got to find a way to practice at that high level if you want to see the results happen yeah. and translate into the match. I mean, when I was watching Maria Sharapova, for instance, you'd never know if you closed your eyes <laughs> or even by watching if you took all the other you know, practice courts and whatnot out of it that she was in a practice mode because for her, it's 110% at all times. Mm-hmm. And so for Sloane Stevens, you know, maybe having Kamau Murray back will sort of instill more of that um, sort of hard work ethic and practice and help her raise that uh, practice game, if you will. But right now, I wouldn't put her on my list of contenders with the other names that you, me, and Eric have already discussed. Yes, uh, she is not on my list for now, but things can change rapidly. If she plays fantastic in the first week, I could completely change my mind on that. We will mention Sharon Fitchman, uh, one of our great doubles players in Canada, is pairing up with Bianca Andreescu to play in the doubles draw this uh 
sets up nicely to tell me that Bianca is feeling really good about her body, that she's agreed to play doubles for this tournament. Yeah, you'd have to think so. And I guess having the day off in singles, as we mentioned, will yeah. allow for her to play some doubles too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to say a little bit, I raised my eyebrow at this one just because, okay, you've only been back for how long now? And you are a contender in the singles. Is it really necessary to go and play doubles? But Let's look at this positively. It's cool to see two Canadians together. Uh, Fishman just played with Jeannie Bouchard in Toronto. So nice to see her playing with another uh, Canadian here. And, uh, you know, for Sharon, potentially uh, Fed Cup doubles uh, with with Gabby Dabrowski down the road. I know Canada just recently, if I'm not mistaken, drew uh, Switzerland as their uh, next opponents. So uh, it's just great to see Sharon back in the mix, playing with the Canadians, part of the team. And uh, we wish them the best in in New York. Yes, uh, we do. And... uh, Last up, we had Hall of Fame nominees for 2020. Four names, all quality ones. Uh, Goran Ivanisevic, Sergei Bruguera, Conchita Martinez, and Jonas Borkman. We'll start with Goran Ivanisevic. And uh, people who follow Milos Raonic should know his face well because he did coach him for a period of time. But also, if you've watched tennis for years, a very familiar champion, enormous serve. Finally had that breakthrough in 2001 Finally winning Wimbledon after so many tries, three other Grand Slam finals. Uh, Is he a lock for you? He was one of my absolute favorites growing up. So I cannot contribute to this conversation (laughs) in an unbiased way. I absolutely loved his quirkiness, his sense of humor. Mm. It was so nice to see him have that moment where he was a wild card, ranked 125th in the world back in 2001. Finally having that moment in a crazy five-setter against uh, Patrick Rafters. So to me, given how many finals he made at Wimbledon and then how at the basically near the end of his career, he was able to have that Cinderella moment. Uh, for me, I put him in there. He's also a, a double bronze medalist in singles and doubles at the 92 Olympics um, and had a heck of a career where he was always lurking in the top 10 or just outside the top 10. So to me, Goran goes in. Absolutely. We'll go to the Spanish player and a fantastic clay quarter in Sergey Bruguera, two-time uh, French Open champion, reached a career-high ranking of number three in the world. Uh, most of the success for Sergey really did come on the clay court surface. If you wanted to call him a specialist, you certainly could. Uh, and currently, he's the uh, Spanish captain for their Davis Cup team. I have to think uh, chances are high he gets in as well. Yeah, he's got a, an Olympic medal as well, a silver medal. I'd have to check the surface on that one. But definitely, to me, he comes to mind when I think of clay court success back then. Uh, two Grand Slams. I mean, I think that gets you in along with other accomplishments and just, you know, strength of play for Bruguera. I, I got to be honest, when I look at all four of these names, I think they're all going in to me, yeah, to be honest. I, I mean, look at Conchita Martinez, Wimbledon champion in 94. Mm-hmm. She beat Martina Navratilova. I remember that one. I couldn't believe that Navratilova uh, was beaten by, by a Spaniard on grass like that. She spent almost four years inside the top five, actually, which I didn't remember that. But to me, that bodes pretty well for her chances. And then Jonas Bjorkman, a nine-time doubles Grand Slam champion, peaked at number four in the world in singles as well. A couple of singles Grand Slam um, semifinals in there too. So to me, I don't know how you can look at any of these four and, and say they won't make it in. Uh, there are other players that, that could be deba- debatable, but when you put these four in, in front of me at least, uh, they, they would all get my vote. Yeah, they're uh, pretty extensive resumes, and uh, I certainly think they're all deserving. And I'm expecting uh, that those are the four names we will see uh, entering the Tennis Hall of Fame in 2020, but we will have to wait and see. I, I know you had kind of a question uh, for me in regards to reaching the Hall of Fame in terms of requirements. What, I mean, what gets you in there is if you have a Grand Slam, one Grand Slam title, does that get you automatically into 
the Hall of Fame. And so, sure, I'll ask you that, and then I'll, I'll let you know what I think. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to reference one player, and credit to him because he won the French Open. Uh, he won the French Open in 2004, uh, but if you look at the bulk of his career, uh, he doesn't scream Hall of Famer to me, and that's Gaston Gaudio of Argentina. 2004 French Open champion uh, did reach a world number five, but overall in terms of the pedigree, only won eight career titles. He didn't have a kind of a lengthy stretch of dominance. Even that French Open title, in a way, kind of came out of nowhere, which I suppose you could argue makes it more impressive. But he wasn't really a sustained, dominant, sort of top 10, top 5 player. He very much peaked uh, earning that French Open title, snuck a few wins uh, in 2005 as well, and then largely didn't do anything outside of clay. So uh, there would be an example of a player who, excellent player, French Open champion, not a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I would agree as well. And there's other names in there in that one slam category that, that to me, definitely don't go in there. Gaudio is on my list. Peter Korda, uh, Thomas Johansson, mm-hmm. uh, Marion Bartley, uh, Anna Ivanovic. I don't know if I would put them in there to me, uh, but doesn't mean you can't go in with one slam because I look at somebody like Andy Roddick. Yeah. Absolutely, he goes into, and if he isn't, he's already in. He went in, I think, a year ago. Yes. Absolutely, he belongs in there uh, because of other tournament titles, a challenging deep in grand slams. He yep. also got denied by Federer uh, how many times? And I think we're going to get some eventual Hall of Famers who might go in without even a single Grand Slam title when you look at how Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have denied pretty much everyone almost in their generation the opportunity to to win one. You might have to dig in and, and give some other people some some opportunities there too. I don't know. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Uh, for example, I, I would probably say... Juan Martin Del Potro, years from now, uh, we're going to be talking about a potential Hall of Fame induction. I think he would be deserving, and he only got that one Grand Slam title. Uh, you know, maybe he'll shut me up and come back from injury and win another. I Wouldn't no that idea. be nice? Eh? <laughs> that and would I, be incredible. I just saw on his Instagram, actually, before coming in the studio here, that uh, he has good news for his fans, that his recovery is going well. He sees a return date onto the court to at least start training soon. He couldn't say when that date was, but said in the next few days, there will be good news coming from the Juan Martin Del Potro camp. There we go. Uh, before we wrap up our U.S. Open preview episode, final topic, favorite U.S. Open winners. And I'll start with you, Mike. Uh, in terms of a men's champion, maybe past or present, your choice, do you have a favorite uh, title that you recall? The, the, f- the funny thing for me is the player I'm going to put forth here was not a player I particularly was a huge fan of when I was a kid or as I was growing up. But to see Pete Sampras win in 2002, Mm. when I pretty much thought by that stage of his career that his slam days were over, uh, that was a really great run where he beat some fantastic players. He just had two weeks where everything was clicking. He dismissed Agassi in the final. And even though at the time I was cheering for Agassi, I was happy and satisfied to see Pete have that moment. And then for him to decide a year later that that would be it, that he wasn't going to return to playing competitively, what better way to go out for a great champion at the time he was the all-time slam leader with 14. So that's just one for the men's side anyways, that really sticks in my mind. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, perfect way to retire sail out to the sunset for Pete Sampras. It's funny because I recall watching that and you feel like maybe you're watching a player that's, much, much older on tour. And then you look back and say, he was actually only 31 years old. We still have these guys, you know, Nadal 33, Federer 38, getting it done, which is uh, incredible, incredible to me. On the men's side, I'm going to reference Nadal's first U.S. Open title in 2010 because uh, that was sort of the year where he kind of answered the bell and answered all the questions 
convincing people that he wasn't just a one surface wonder. He did it in 2008 winning Wimbledon, but then uh, 2009 gets the Australian Open and then 2010 completing the trophy trophy case career Grand Slam, huge U.S. Open title over Novak Djokovic. And that 2010 season was probably the best of his career, winning three Grand Slams. Women's side, I'm going to go over to uh, Lindsay Davenport, who actually one of the best ball strikers on the tour and was kind of a little more soft-spoken and not sort of as big a superstar at the time when you had Venus and Serena and then Hennen coming up and Kleisters taking up some titles as well. Lindsay Davenport winning uh, her U.S. Open in, two, in 1998, actually. Beating Venus Williams was a really impressive feat, one of her three Grand Slams. And uh, for me, I would have to say uh, Kim Kleisters 10 years ago in 2009 when she had just come back from uh, becoming a mom and, mm-hmm. and giving birth and coming back to the tour and and what a great summer she had you know, going and, and winning that slam title where she was unseated in the draw and had to work her way through a, a tough field. So, you know, huge props for doing that. And, I mean, Kleister is just one of the all-time nicest, you know, nice with the press, nice with her fellow players, you know, nothing negative that you can really say about her. So to come back after that kind of, you know, life-changing experience and be able to not just come back and be sort of semi-successful, but to win a Grand Slam was uh, was awesome for me. Yeah, certainly incredible. You can let us know your favorite U.S. Open winners, uh, on Twitter, below in the comments as we get this U.S. Open preview episode up for you. Main draw action will begin Monday. Plenty of fantastic matches to get excited for. Maria Sharapova against Serena Williams will be that Monday night match. Uh, I know I will be watching. Thank you so much to Eric Goodris for joining us. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you again next.